0: i going to look at James chapter 4 as we continue our study in the book of James, Authentic Christianity. The message this morning is a greater grace. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word. Lord, I pray that you would give us understanding of your word. Lord, that I might be spirit-filled as a teacher, that believers might be spirit-filled listeners, that we would be not just hearers, but obedient to your word. Pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Now, last week, the end of chapter three, we looked at how leadership in a church can be destroyed by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Verse thirteen, he basically saying, "How do you pick your leaders? Who is wise among you and understanding? Let him show his good behavior by his deeds and the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have Bitterness and selfish ambition in your heart. Do not be arrogant, so lie against the truth. This wisdom does not come down from above, but it's earthly, worldly. It's natural, our flesh, and it's demonic. So he comes to chapter 4, and he asks the question, so what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Guess what? Same thing. Same thing. The world, the flesh, And the devil are the challenges that we live with. The devil, we can't blame the devil for everything we do wrong. But he is the prince and the power of the air. He's in charge of many things today, in case you didn't know that. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says, Everybody that doesn't belong to Christ is a child of disobedience. So Paul could say in Ephesians chapter 6, your problem is not just your boss or that ornery teacher or that neighbor you have. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Well, how does that work? Well, because all he's got to do is tell them to do something, and they're going to do it. But God has saved us that we might reign in life and not just be controlled by circumstances and wicked people. In Romans Chapter 5, verse 17, it says, For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one, Jesus Christ. Warren Wiersbe wrote a book many years ago about the Beatitudes, and he called the book Live Like a King. And he based that book on Ecclesiastes 10, verse 5 through 7. He said, There's an evil which I have seen under the sun, like an error which goes forth from the ruler. Folly is set in many exalted places, while rich people sit in humble places. Verse 7, I have seen slaves riding on horses and princes walking like slaves on the land. And Warren Wiersbe's point was, if you've received Christ as your Savior, you have the Holy Spirit. You have the ability to spread your wings of grace that God has given you and rise above the circumstances and not just be like a pinball in a pinball machine, just get knocked around and say, well, that's the way life is. Being under the load rather than full of grace because you have the Holy Spirit. But what is the reason why the church lacks power today in so many places in America? So we ask the question, what's the source I want you to remember something, that if you're married this morning, it's not just other people in the church, but your spouse is part of the church also. So you can take this personally if you want to. Where do these quarrels and conflicts come from? You're having quarrels and conflicts in your home, and you're both Christians. Where do those come from? Well, you know, you can say like Adam, well, Lord, the wife you gave me, she does this, and so I had to do this. Well, that husband, he did this, so I have to react like this. Where do they come from? He answered the question, is not the source of those quarrels and conflicts your own pleasures? You just want your way. If only we could just rule the world ourselves, everybody would fall in line, and I would have a lot easier time being a Christian. It would be a lot easier for me. But you see, our pleasures rule rather than the Spirit of God. How do you know? Well, there should be pop quizzes all the time. Every time your wife, your husband, another person in the church, another believer doesn't do the things you want them to do, they do it wrong, they don't appreciate you, maybe they even gossip about you, they do something wrong, and you feel the need to have to get even, that is the flesh. That's your desires for pleasure. That's your desire to have your way. The problem is, we live in a culture that the Christian standard has become, hey, God just wants to make you happy with the things of the world. That is a lie from Satan's hell. God wants you to be all you can be for him, filled with the Spirit. That doesn't include, you know, God wants you to drive this kind of car and live in this kind of house so people can see how successful you are. No, that's worldliness. And John wrote... The world is passing away and the lusts of it. But he that does the will of God will abide forever. Half the battle is understanding what the problem is. And the biggest problem we have is not somebody else. It's not somebody else's sin. It's me. It's me. It's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Amen. See, if we would begin to get a hold of that to really be like Christ, then we'd stop shoving the blame off on other people and we could deal with self. Well, the first reason the church is weak is because so many times we allow ourselves to let our flesh rule the day. And it goes on to say in verse two, you lust and you do not have. And so you commit murder. You say, whoa, pastor, I wouldn't go that far. Well, Jesus, when he was making comment on that in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, he says, you have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says you fool shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. See, that's what God says about our attitudes about one another including our husbands, our wives, our children, our fellow believers. What is our attitude? God goes way past outside actions and goes to the heart and to the attitude. So we lust and we have not, and then we desire to kill. We just get hateful when we don't get our way sometimes. Then he says we have empty goals He says, we are envious and desirous to obtain, and we can't obtain, and so we fight and quarrel, and we have not because we ask not. That's an important point there. We have not because we ask not. Why? Because we learn as mature believers that we can handle things on our own. Now, the Bible says, be anxious for nothing, but everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. But we say, oh, Lord, I've got this. I don't need to pray about this. I know how this goes. Besides, I wouldn't ask God for that. What do you mean? Well, I want to get even with so-and-so. I'm not sure God's in that. Probably not. But we get independent and we don't ask. But then it says, we ask and we receive not. Why? Because we ask with wrong motivations so that we can just feed our pleasures and our lusts. We just want it for me. Lord, 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 please give me that job so I can get money so I can buy myself a new Mercedes. Lord, I really need this. I guess God doesn't care about me because I never get what I want. Or maybe God's trying to change your want-to's. See, that's what he came into our life to do was change our desires, our want-to's. The Bible says in Psalm 37, 4, if we delight ourselves in the Lord, he gives us the desires of our heart. What does that mean? That's a double-edged sword. It means that if Christ is my delight, I just want what he wants. And guess what? He wants to give me those things because he wants to be, be, to be a mature son that reflects his grace and glory to other people. That's what he wants. And he still has a lot of surgery to do on our lives, doesn't he? Cutting the flesh off, cutting anger off, cutting our desire to be right because we're right. Putting that away from us so we can begin to relax and just trust him. Trusting a faithful creator to do what is right in any situation. But we have hateful attitudes, we have empty pursuits, and we have worldly values. Verse 4, you adulteresses. Now, it's to both men and women because his audience, for the most part, is Christian Jewish people. In the Old Testament, what was God always bringing up to his people? Calling them adulteresses. Why? Because they honored God with their lips, but their heart was someplace else. They knew how to play church, but their heart was someplace else. And I believe he's writing to believers here because you wouldn't call them adulteresses otherwise. You adulteresses, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? He say, well, I don't think I'm hostile towards God. Well, what is worldliness? Worldliness is that system that has a certain set of values that's always trying to press you into its mold. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, where it says, don't let the world press you into its mold, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might find out what that good and acceptable, the perfect will of God is for your life. But the world, there's pressure there. Where do you feel the pressure? Parents, you feel it. When you begin to pressure your kids, hey, child, you need to get really good grades so you can get a good job, so you can get your retirement. And No, no, don't go that way. No, no There's no money in being a missionary, so no, don't do that. Um, uh, and you need to get really good in sports because you've got to get a scholarship so they recognizes you can play pro. And we want to be a part of the world's religion after all, don't we? I mean, everybody worships on Sunday in the fall. Saturday, Sunday, Monday, Thursday, we got to worship the NFL. It has blown my mind, and I tell you, I'm losing interest really fast. I used to really love football. There's so many good illustrations in the game of football, but in the business of football, it has become a religion. Have you noticed it? You got to wear certain uniforms. You pay big monies if you ever go to the temple of worship to worship your team. I mean, it's big time. I just finished watching a film called Concussion when a doctor tried to show the danger for these professional football players and the guys that make all the money didn't want to know about the dangers. They just wanted him to shut up and go away. They don't care what happens to the fellas as long as they can play, right? So that's a religion. And people pay big money and they support their team and you talk about the Broncos of some people and you're not a Bronco fan, which I'm not. I'm not really a fan of any team anymore. I like, there's several teams I kind of watch because of coaching, but well, you've got to be a Bronco fan. Or if you live in Chicago, you've got to be a Bears fan. If you live in Detroit, you've got to be a Steelers fan. I mean, in, in Pittsburgh, you've got to be a Steelers fan. he's probably our Steelers fan in Detroit, too. It's religion. And so we can get on that road, too, and whether it's hockey or baseball or soccer or basketball or football. Our kid's going to be a pro. That's what's important. What should be important is we are praying for our young people to grow up to be strong men and women of God. How's that? How's that become a priority and not worldliness? Well, when the doors are open, you're there. You take the time with your family to read the Word of God and live it before them. You see, your kids are going to do what you did, not what you said to do. They're going to do what you did, what you honored, what you worshiped. And worldliness has this way of creeping in. And I know sports has always been this okay thing for Christians because it's sports. And didn't Paul say exercise profiteth a little bit? And he used Olympic illustrations, so it must be okay. We've got to be alert so that worldliness does not creep into our lives because there's always something else vying for the throne that only Jesus should be sitting in. But we get separated. We get worldly values. Whoever, therefore, would be a friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God. And we're living that way. We get separate, verse 5. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the Spirit which he has made to dwell in us. That's a difficult verse. But I believe what James is saying is, listen, Jesus saved you for a purpose. He saved you on purpose. He has gifted you specially for that purpose, and he desires that you win in this race. Paul said, I buffet my body. I beat my body and make it my slave so that one day I don't become somebody God can't use in the ministry. He said, I want to, when I when I throw a punch, I want to land a punch. I don't want to be one that just beats the air. And so he says, run to win. If you're involved in discipleship, you know what that feels like. You're involved in Christian counseling. How many times I've sat with couples and they're done when the answer is so simple. They both claim to know Jesus, but they have their fingers and they're pointing their fingers and I just want to tell him, hey, this is really very simple. You just have to forgive and make a decision to love your wife. Well, I can't do that. Make a decision to love your husband. I can't do it. You, you, you know what he did? Yeah, I've heard all of it. You told me that already. See, God's grace is greater than sin. It's greater than what they did. It's greater than and you don't have a case before the Lord. Because the Bible says in Second Corinthians five, the last verse, He was made sin for you, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteous of God in him. Jesus talks about that fellow that owed so much to the king, millions and millions of dollars. There's no way he could ever pay it back. He probably had a surefire deal. I don't know if it was on the horses or if it was a business, but he lost. In the tradition, in that day, you get thrown into debtor's prison. Well, he's going to be there the rest of his life. There's no way for him to pay it back. But he threw himself on the ground at the mercy of the king, and the, mercy the king had pity on him. And he said, I forgive you. And the first thing the fella did that was forgiven, he went out and took his friend by the throat that owed him $20. Why? Because his friend was part of the problem. The first guy he could grab, I'm getting even. And he took him by the throat and he said, You owe me that 20 bucks, you pay it back, or I'm throwing you in prison. What happened? Well, the king found out about it. And the Bible says, If you don't forgive, God's not going to forgive you. And what he's saying is the mark of a believer is we just forgive because we've been forgiven. And we understand what great grace has been bestowed upon us. Because why? We are guilty of the murder of the only begotten Son of God. You ever think about that? See, it's, it's a little easier to have a little balance in your mind to be kind and tender-hearted, forgiving one another, when we remember that God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven us. Mm-hmm. And we're not worthy to say, well, that, that guy, that person... That woman, they don't deserve forgiveness. Neither do I, neither do you. And God wants so much for us to spread our wings on the winds of grace and be lifted above the circumstance and learn how to forgive and become graceful about our forgiveness and graceful about our living. We say, well, I've never flown before. And I'm just more comfortable being angry and bitter because, you know, i got to luck out for myself. Or you could trust the Lord, a faithful creator, to do what is right by just forgiving. How many times? Well, Jesus said 70 times 7 in a day. Hmm. Hmm. What does that mean? It means that you learn to forgive and you keep forgiving until God stops forgiving you. That's grace. We have these worldly values that has led us to separation, and so we have independence, and God is jealous over us with a jealousy. He just wants us to become that person that he saved us to be. He wants to be fulfilled in ministry. He wants to win that one day he can say to you and me, well done faithful servant. You say, well, I do great things for God except for my wife, except for my husband. Except for this one older Christian. I quit going to that church because there's one-only Christian there. Well, let me ask you a question. You think there's no hypocrites at Safeway or Ridley's or Walmart, but you keep shopping there, don't you? Why would you let somebody come between you and God? No, that's just bitterness and that's Satan's deal. He wants to separate people from fellowship so they're out there all on their own, separated. Thinking I've got this handled. I've got it handled. I'll do it. You know in Ephesians chapter 2, John starts out, or, I mean, Paul starts out and he says, "You know, Satan, he's the prince of the power of the air and and everybody here is children of disobedience, and we were too, just like them, but God in his great love with which he loved us. It's a great love. Why? Because he took children of disobedience. He took rebellion. We sing a song. Jason has a song we sing every once in a while. Don't know the name of it, but I love it. And it is, if God hadn't saved me, I'd still be a rebel today. If God hadn't confronted me and pulled me out of my situation, I'd still be running as fast as I could go the wrong direction. But He loved me with that great love. So we have our flesh against us, right? Our flesh wants to do the wrong stuff, it just wants to take care of us. Other people get in the way of that. And we have empty values, we have worldly values. And now you see this, God's jealous over us. So now we're even separate our relationship. What can we do? The next verse, but God gives a greater grace. What is grace? Grace is the power and the desire to do the will of God. Yes, it's unmerited, but what does it do? It can change my attitude about who God is. And so it says, God resists the proud. So there's one hint. How am I going to get right with God? How can I have peace in my marriage? How can there be peace in the things that I'm doing? How can I have that confidence that I'm pleasing the Lord? It starts with God's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So I think I should think about what humble means. What we have in verses one through five is the road to destruction, the road to death. And six through 10, is the road to repentance. John 10.10, Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and they may have it more abundantly. How many believers, they just don't operate in grace. They receive Christ their Savior, and they're still angry. They're still guarded. And they never grow. All you gotta do is just bump a little bit and what They just spill bitterness all over people. How do you deal with that? Well, the Bible says that's that's Satan's way. We need to be willing to trust God and trust his way. And it starts with humility. Verse 7, the grace to submit, because he said that God is opposed to the proud. If you're separating your relationship with God, because that's where sin takes you, understand, God's opposed to that. You're separated in your fellowship. And sometimes I've seen believers that get separated from God and they just kind of stay there because, well, I'm used to this. Well, that's a great reason. Well, I'm just used to it. So I'll just take my life as it is. I don't I don't need to have victory in Jesus. I'm going to heaven. So and so they live there in misery. He gives a greater grace. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Grace to do what? Verse 7, to submit to God. See, if you're a believer, you have this tension. There's the tension of your flesh, Paul talked about in Romans chapter 7. Those things that I know I should be doing, I fail and I don't get them done. Those things that I don't want to do, I fail and I end up sinning. There's a struggle going on. I believe he was writing that as a mature believer. There's always a struggle going on. How do I get victory? It's by beginning to make decisions. Instead of giving into Satan and the flesh and the world, resist that and submit. Resist Satan, submit to God. How do do that? Verse 8, draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. You know what happens when you draw near to God? You begin to see God in all of his holiness, and that becomes more than the word. And when Isaiah was pulled into the throne room of God in a vision, and just like John the the Apostle in the book of Revelation, he gets a glimpse of God, and where is he? He's flat on his face. And his first response to God is, I'm a dead man. Literally, I'm a man about to be ripped apart by the power of the holiness of the physical presence of God. Why? Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I've I'm I'm lived in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Most of those people that weren't there in the throne room that he lived among with, with Isaiah would have said, hey, we're not that bad. But when you draw near to God, all of a sudden, His holiness comes into view and has an effect to help us to see ourselves the way God sees ourselves and our sin. That's drawing near to God. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We talked about that in the first chapter. Double-minded. That's when you want God's blessing, but you kind of want to praise the world at the same time. I want my life to be easy over here, but I'd like God to make sure that he's kind of blessing me at the same time. No, no, no. If you're going to let patience have its perfect work in your life, you're going to have to just submit yourself to God. Say, God, you do whatever you want. I belong to you. I can trust my soul to a faithful creator to do what is right. I'm just going to trust him in this rocky relationship of a marriage. I'm going to let go of what she's going to do, what he's going to do. I'm just going to trust God. I am going to be righteous. I've had the blessing of being able to counsel with so many because we live in that age where a wife or a girlfriend is separated and they take a child with them. And so we can have a righteous attitude. I'm the believer and she's not. And so I need to make sure I keep that child with me. And yet the Bible gives instruction, doesn't it? It says we're called to peace. We're called to peace. I've had the joy of watching my brother Terry Diltz deal with a situation like that. And guess what? Both his sons, with mothers far away, came to know Christ and have Christian families today. He just trusted God. He didn't fight. He did what he was supposed to. And to be able to have that example as a pastor, be able to talk to some of my other young brothers that have gone through the same thing, say, listen, you trust God for your child. You don't fight. Why? Because the Bible says we're called to peace. Yeah, but but I think I could be better in control if I was just there, really? You can be a better father than God can? I don't think so. I don't think so. You can trust God as a faithful creator in doing what is right. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts. Get to the place you say, Lord, whatever you want. That's what I want. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let God change you. How can that happen? You see, that's called repentance, and repentance is a grace that you can't work up, only God can do. How do you know if somebody's really repented? You don't. Only time. Now, if a brother comes to you and says, will you forgive me? The Bible says, forgive them 70 times seven per day. What's the Lord telling us? You keep forgiving them till I stop forgiving you, but you don't know if they've repented or not, do they? I mean, if somebody's doing 70 times 7 a day, probably not. Okay. But you don't need to get bitter about it. That's what the Lord's saying. You keep forgiving. Repentance is something that God can grant. It's a gift. 2 Timothy 2.25. The Bible says, The minister of the Lord must be gentle, correcting those who are in opposition to themselves, If perhaps God may grant them repenting leading to the knowledge of the truth, before a person can even come to Christ, God has to open their mind to the fact that they're lost. Now, you don't want to be in the way of that. You can just forgive them, get out of the way, and let God change their heart. Keep praying for them. Keep giving them the gospel. But you can't work up a sorrow. Otherwise, you'd be like Jacob's brother Esau, Oh, he was so sorry he'd missed out on the blessing that he gave his, his birthright away, and he sought for it again with tears, but God saw his heart, and he said, it wasn't repentance. It was just tears of regret. Only God can give those tears of repentance by showing us the wickedness and the destruction of our own sin. That's a gift that God grants so we can actually be miserable and mourn and weep. In verse 10, it says, God gives us the grace not only to repent, but to bow low, humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. Well, God's everywhere present. I think what he's saying is there comes a point that God's convicting you, you need to make a decision about that. Well, I'll think about that. If you're a believer, no, 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 now is the time to repent. If you're not a believer, Paul says, "Now's the day of salvation. The Lord might be knocking on your door right now. He may not be there tomorrow. Even as a believer, he can leave you in your hardness. Old preachers used to say, he bends, he breaks, and he buries. And it's still his joy to call his children home, but that means they wouldn't be able to finish what he saved them to do on earth. That's sad. They stand before the Lord. They have nothing to offer for all God has done for him in that great time of worship. Comes time for repentance, a time for decision. Lord, I'm going to trust you in this. Then it says he will exalt you, or literally he will lift you up. Galatians 5 again. Verse 16, but I say walk on the wind. Walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. How is that? What does that look like? That means that you know you have a certain problem with anger. You have a certain problem with your way, a certain problem in your life. You go to your brother or sister. You go to the Word. You say, what does the Bible talk about this? And you get that in your life. You memorize it. And the next time you're tempted or tested there, you just take a right instead of a left. Because you recognize for you to get angry again about the same thing supposedly you've given your spouse or your, your, your husband or your wife before is really bad sin on your part. It's not love. It's you keeping a list. And God doesn't keep a list, does he? No, it says that as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our sin from us. He's buried it in the deepest sea. And here's the amazing part. God doesn't hold it against you any longer. So who are you, this human being who's also been forgiven, to bring up this list again and say, hey, by the way, remember this? God hates that. He hates it. But if you'll make that scary choice, just obey the word, what will happen is you spread out your wings that God has given you and he will lift you up. You'll find something. You've got a power to forgive You didn't even know existed before because you're willing to trust God. And somebody says something about you, and you can say, well, I'm going to defer my anger on this, and you're going to just spread your wings, and God can lift you up. You can walk where God walks. The Bible says in Psalm 104:3 that God makes the cloud his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messengers, flaming fire. His ministers. There's an old gospel song. It says this marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's Mount on poured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Grace in our lives as believers is the power and the desire to do the will of God. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Lord, as we gather around the table and you bring some of those injuries to mind, Lord, I pray that we would confess them, that you would grant us repentance, that we might come to the table with clean hands. That, Lord, that we would endeavor to fill ourselves up with the word, that we might be filled with the spirit. Lord, that we'd be a blessing to your name as we desire, Lord, to conduct all our business, speaking the truth in love. Lord, I thank you as we gather on the table because you took the penalty for us. And Lord, that we would live with that same grace in mind, we pray in Jesus' name.